We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, what is up, everybody? Welcome inside the Guilty as Charged podcast. I am officially no longer in my in-laws' house recording from their uh, spare bedroom. So uh, first episode, first guest back in my own home, back in this home in-home studio. And I uh, had to make it a big one, of course. Joining me to do so is our guy, Daniel Popper of The Athletic. Popper, thanks for joining to th- join us tonight, man. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. I got to say that that beat on the lead-in, I was like... <laughs> I was vibing. Where'd you guys get that? Uh, that was courtesy of Canva, Canva Premium. I don't know if you've heard of Canva, but that's where we—that's uh, the the site we use all to make all of our graphics and things like that. So nice. That's a vibe. Uh, Big yeah. fan. Shout out to the uh, production. <laughs> appreciate it. Appreciate it. So, um, you know, we just got the news that uh, you know, of course, the Chargers and Dolphins game has been flexed out, but uh, we're gonna start here in a bit of a fun one because I. I have a bit of a bone to pick with you about a take that you had on your recent hops with pop. And that right. is that elf is the undisputed best Christmas movie of all time. Uh, what's up with that, man? Are you, you know, we got the, the Jim Carrey's Grinch just being slept on. I mean, I know you mentioned home alone, but uh, why elf as the undisputed goat? Well, it's just my favorite. I, I honestly, I walked it back right after I said that because people started putting their favorite Christmas movies <laughs> in the chat. And I was like, oh my God, I probably said that before I had really thought about it. It's the only Christmas movie that my fiance and I own. We bought it like two years ago on Amazon. So we own it. And so we watch it like seven times every single Christmas season. And I just, I think it's just, it's heartwarming. Will Ferrell is just fantastic. Um, you know, and then uh, Peter Dinklage is in it too. Yeah, 
from, uh, from Game of Thrones. He's fantastic in it. I just think it's heartwarming. It's it's original. The writing's really good. Like it's not like a cheesy Christmas movie. Like I really feel like, you know, after I watch it, like I feel really sentimental and I'm like, okay, I'm in the mood for Christmas. Now, like I, I probably was a little strong with the take. Like I think there are a lot of great <laughs> Christmas movies out there and like people through Home Alone out there. I love Home Alone. So it's like, it's definitely my favorite, but I think I said it was non-negotiable. It's probably a little bit negotiable. <laughs> Just a little bit. It's all good. I, I love the Elf Man as well. It's a it's a top five Christmas movie for me as well. I'm just I'm attached to Jim Carrey's Grinch. That's a great uh, one. Yeah, know. see, I hadn't even thought about that one. You threw that one out. That's also a fantastic one as well. Yeah, and there, there are some new newer movies out there that have come out recently that are that are good ones. Um, uh, the animated Grinch with Benedict Cumberbatch also a, a one that Brooke and I really like as well. So oh, I don't know. If uh, I've seen that. Yeah, you have to check it like, out then. It's, it's like the old, the old animated Grinch, like the old, old one. But I don't think I've seen the new one. Yeah, no, the the new one has uh, it's a uh, the track, the score. I guess is all uh, produced by Farrell or Farrell, excuse me. Oh, Farrell. Um, yes. And so there's a, there's one on there with um, Tyler the Creator that actually is like one of my favorite Christmas songs. Yeah. Oh wow! All right. So it's uh, I gotta check that out. One. There you go. Add it to your list for sure. So, uh, like I said, obviously here to talk about some uh, Chargers football here, of course. Uh, Pop, your initial reaction to the Chargers and Dolphins getting flexed to uh, Sunday Night Football as uh, instead of the Chiefs and Broncos game that was supposed to be that weekend. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone is sick of watching the Broncos play in primetime. <laughs> <laughs> I think literally that's what it comes down to, because it's not just that they're losing. Like, they just play a really ugly brand of football. You know, now it's coming out that Nathaniel Hackett is probably done after one season. It's just unwatchable football the defense is fantastic so they're an elite elite defense but people don't really like to watch defense most people i like to watch defense i'm sure you like to watch defense steven my father loves to watch defense uh grew up watching the 80s giants and bill belichick back in the 80s but most people aren't going to sit there and love like a 13 to 10 slugfest so you figured it was going to get flexed out and then just the storylines of that game are through the roof right you have the two at herbert same draft class two is Coming, coming into his own under Mike McDaniel, playing really well. And so, you know, a lot of the the storylines sort of write themselves there, and it, it sort of makes sense to teams that are at this point in, in the playoff hunt. Dolphins a little more in the hunt than the Chargers at this point, but sort of made sense. Yeah, yeah you, you have to figure that, you know, every game down the stretch on Sunday football is in danger of getting flexed out in, in place of a uh, a more playoff-inclined kind of matchup. So I'm, I'm excited for it, man. I uh, – there's going to be a, a ton of st- great storylines, ton of great matchups. Hopefully uh, we can get Joey Bosa back in time for that game. That'd be fantastic. But, um, you know, I, I want to, that happens just saying really. Yeah. I think, I, I think I threw out the dolphins game just the way it's trending right now. Like we asked again on Monday to Brandon Staley, still no update probably means he's not going to be at back at practice this week. We still haven't seen him in the locker room. So Maybe week 15 Titans. I don't know. I would be surprised if he's back week 14, just the way things are sort of trending right now. Um, But we'll see. I mean, basically, like, they called it a torn groin, but the surgeon he went to see in Philadelphia is really a sports hernia surgeon. Um, I know Staley initially put, like, a six- to ten-week timetable on it. That was probably referring to, like, when he's going to be back at practice. And so ten weeks would be, you know, that week of the Dolphins game. So maybe he's back at practice that week. But you know how they've done it with injuries is, like, we want a guy to practice a full week before he plays. And so, um, yeah, I, at this point, I'd be surprised if he's back for that. Maybe Titans week 15 is probably the earliest. I, would, I wouldn't I would be surprised if he's back. Yeah, I know this upcoming Friday is officially eight weeks from the surgery. 
Right. So um, September 29th was the surgery. So Friday, yeah, Friday would be eight weeks. So that like that gives you an idea. Like 10 weeks is probably the back end of like when he would be he would return to practice, not necessarily return game, if that makes things a little bit clearer. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know people ask us all the time about Joey Bosa's return. So I yeah. appreciate the the clarity there. And I'm sure you've gotten that question a bunch too. Um, never, never gotten the question. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I don't know about you, man, but we're just we're so sick of talking about injuries this year, and it's just like every other week. And now this week again, we're we're going to be talking about uh, Trey Pipkins potentially not playing this week with his MCL injury, kind of just popping back up again. And uh, it's just been a season of of never ending injury talk, man. Yeah, yeah, it's just I feel terrible for Trey, right? Because he he's put so much work in to get to this point. You know, I wrote all about how he went down to Dallas to work with Denny, Duke Manyweather all off season, And he was a different player. Like we all saw it before he hurt his knee in that Cleveland game. Like he was looking like a long-term solution at right tackle. I put, I give him a ton of credit for putting the work in to get himself to this point and take all of those tools that we've seen and turn it into like real legitimate production, both as a pass protector and run blocker. And so then he, you know, this is the third time now that he's had some sort of setback with the MCL, you know, he, initially heard it against Cleveland and it's just guys rolling up on his knee, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like completely unlucky things. I like can go rewatch the play, um, you know, from Sunday and it's just, he's pass protecting on the right side and someone falls over and rolls into the knee. It's happened three times now. And it's just really unlucky because he keeps working himself back to the point where he feels like he can play and he's battling through this thing. And he just keeps getting really unlucky in terms of 300 pound men rolling into his knee. And it's already, you know, the structure is already not there um, because he has the sprained MCL and it's just unlucky event after unlucky event in a contract year, which is just, you know, really cruddy way to go about yeah, it. Absolutely. And when he was healthy, he was playing fantastic football out there. Yeah. And I thought that he was 100%. somebody that, you know, had really stabilized the right tackle position. And now he's just, you know, all these injuries and things like that. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I kind of want to talk about the, the offensive unit in general, not from the sense that everybody else wants to talk about it, of course, but, um, I'm curious to just kind of get your thoughts about how they've kind of approached all of these moving parts because, you know, we talk about, you know, Corey Lindsley being in, in and out of the lineup as well. And obviously Jamari Sawyer, very different tackle from Rashawn Slater. Um, and the Chargers kind of ranking in that, you know, 20 to 25 range in terms of like ESPN's block win rates. Um, how would you assess how the Chargers have kind of adapted to this new offensive line and obviously protecting Justin Herbert has, has been kind of a struggle the last few weeks. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really good question. Um, you know, in some ways they've done well, right? Like I think you have to give the coaching staff a lot of credit for how they've helped Jamari Salyer sort of move in there. I think we've seen over the last two or three weeks that like, he's not the guy that maybe everyone thinks he is based on, you know, what they're watching. Um, you know, he, he, when he's on an Island, he's not Rashawn Slater. You know, and like in order for him to play at a high level, they do have to scheme stuff up, whether that's pocket movement, whether that's chipping to his side and the games that he's played really well. I think the protection plan has been really good. They've been able to stay ahead of the sticks and they've been able to keep themselves out of those, you know, known passing situations. Um, But the fact that they've been able to plug him in and he's been a serviceable functional player there at left tackle, even though he's given up a couple sacks over the last couple of weeks, um, I think the coaching staff deserves a lot of credit, but the run game just isn't there. Um, you know, yeah. Justin Herbert is always going to be fantastic at avoiding sacks. I think the last couple of weeks that sack per pressure rate has gone up a little bit. Uh, but for the most part, he's done an excellent job of sort of mitigating the pressure when it has come. Um, but the run game just isn't there. 
you know, and like I've, I've had a number of conversations with Corey Lindsley about this, just trying to see like what, like how do you figure it out? And it's like, he said something really interesting, interesting to me last week. It's like, you're moving players in and out. And yeah, those players bring different stuff to the table in a positive sense, but they also present different problems. Mm-hmm. And so when you have the same five guys out there, you know what the problems are, you know what the weaknesses of the players are, and you can a- address those weaknesses when they come up because you know exactly what they are. But when you're plugging different guys in there, and it's Foster Sorella, right tackle, and it's Will Clapp in there, um, you know, the problems are different. And then a lot of the running game is how these players are blocking together, right? And yeah. so Cor- something Corey brought up that was that was interesting, right? In the San Francisco game, he and Zion saw something in the game, and then afterwards when they were watching the film, they're like, hey, we like – we need to adjust our footwork like the littlest bit on this combo block on this specific play. And it's going to open things up. And then the following week against the chiefs, they execute that, that double team, that combo block, and it works out perfectly. Right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden Corey Lindsley's out and then will claps in. And then all the work that you've done to make that little fix to execute that one play is out the window and you have to go start back at square one. And I think that's a lot of the issues with, the, with the running game. And then, you know, a lot of it is game script too. And it's like, you won't won't talk in these generalities, but in reality, not you specifically, but I'm saying people like to talk in these generalities. Right. But it's like a couple plays, you know, Eckler has a good run there initially. And then there's a couple plays, you know, Isaiah Spiller has a three yard run and then they'd get blown up on that pitch play. That's one play. And then all of a sudden it's a three and out and, you know, you fall behind 10, nothing. And then all of a sudden the game script switches and you can't run as much. Um, when you only get off nine runs though, like how many, how much can you really fix? And you have guys moving in and out. It's like, how can you address these problems if you're only getting off nine runs in a game? Um, so, you know, in terms of the pass protection, like I think it's, it's been obviously up and down, but you trust the quarterback with his skill set to be able to mitigate a lot of that. I think the bigger issue in terms of these moving pieces is like getting the run blocking together. And that's not even mentioning the fact that, you know, Gerald Everett's been in and out. Donald Parham's barely been there. The tight end blocking, which I'm sure you've seen on film. It's so frustrating. (laughs) Freaking disaster, man. I mean, it's an absolute disaster. Um, And that's big because, you know, you you run to the edge and if the tight end's getting blown off the ball, like the five offensive linemen can be blocking it up perfectly and the run's going to go for negative two yards. You know, and then obviously we haven't even talked about, you know, the receivers coming in and out. What a key part Keenan Allen is in the run blocking. Um, And then he comes back in there and – you know, all of a sudden then Trey Pipkins is out. And so say he, you know, I haven't talked to these guys about it, but say Keenan Allen and Trey Pipkins are on the same page in terms of how to block something. or, And all of a sudden that guy's out. And then all of a sudden different problems arise with Foster Sorrell. So like, I think when like the bigger issue with the guys moving in and out has been with the run blocking, because in terms of pass protection, you can do a lot to, um, you know, schematically to help those guys. And then Justin Herbert's always going to be really good at avoiding pressure and then making plays under pressure. Yeah, he's I mean, he's so fantastic at that. But, you know, getting back to your point about the run game a little bit, I felt like that San Francisco game, you could really kind of tell that they were just trying to do a little bit too much and trying to figure out a little bit too much. And then, you know, once Kansas City came rolling in, it was a little bit was a simpler, more you know condensed approach. And I felt like it worked you know to their advantage uh, in that game. And Eckler was able to have really his best game uh, for quite some time, at least in terms of rushing and production. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit here and talk about a more positive development that I don't think is really getting enough attention nationally. I mean, there's a lot of fantasy football relevance with this, but um, Josh Palmer has really come into his own over the last few weeks. And we're talking about somebody that's uh, had two 100 yard games. I mean, he had uh, another 50 yard performance this Sunday. 
what's kind of the the vibe around Josh Palmer these days and really what kind of advantages do you see that presenting when Mike Williams uh, gets back in a few weeks? Yeah, I think we've seen, you know, the vision that they had for Josh Palmer when they drafted him, right? A guy that can play in a lot of different spots, can win outside in contested ball situations, you know, yards after the catch. Like he even got was able to access the deep part of the field. Like that's not, you know, the the, the top part of his skill set. But, um, you know, I think we've seen the player that they thought he was going to be, you know, a guy that could, um, you know, run really good routes, create separation, Um you know, make plays in contested catch situations. And I think they're really excited about what he could be. And, and he does give you a lot of flexibility because we've seen him fill a lot of roles, right? Like when Keenan's been out, um, you know, even that Giants game last year, but even this year, you can see him that he can operate in the slot and he presents a mismatch in there because of his size. Um, and then we've all also seen him execute well on the outside, which is where Mike Williams plays, even isolated as that X receiver. Um so it gives him flexibility in terms of scheme on the field and also gives him flexibility moving forward because they could potentially move on from Keenan Allen after this season. And, um, you know, that fits together, right? If, if Mike's healthy playing on the outside at X and then you can have Josh Palmer as sort of your your inside slot guy. Um, so they're, they're really excited about it. I think, like, the ball security has been a little bit of a weird issue. Like, he's put mm-hmm. the ball on the ground a number of times. Like, he obviously, um, you know, had that fumble that Michael Bandy recovered. But he... he he lost the ball early in that game as well. You know, he was down before con down by contact before the ball came out. Um, that's the only like knock I would have against it, but, but you're seeing the production, you're seeing him win against man coverage. Um, and you know, they're really excited about his development. And I think he's sort of on track for what they expected from him when they drafted him in the third round last year. Yeah, absolutely. It's been really fun to see him come on. And there was a lot of strong takes uh, about Josh Palmer to start the season, but I mean, he had the the knee injury and the second concussion yeah. and things like that. So I think now that he's healthy, we're really seeing, you know, him come on strong. Yep. Um, you know, have to get your thoughts here about the run defense because you obviously wrote uh, a great article yesterday about it with <laughs> the uh, yards per attempt uh, on design yeah. rushes for the Chargers. Uh, worst uh, since 2000 of any team in the Super Bowl era. It could so, be worse than that because I, the data only goes back to 2000. Yeah, right. It could, it could, it could be, be worse, worse than that for sure. That, yeah. um, you know, obviously there's a lot of moving parts there. Obviously, Austin Johnson's not playing anymore. Otito Ogbonia, Christian Covington, we all know this. How does this run defense get better in your eyes with the personnel that they currently have? Because you know, this is, you know, we're talking about upcoming matchups with Derrick Henry and Jonathan Taylor. And, um, you know, obviously the, the Dolphins have Jeff Wilson and Raheem Mostert. So how do the Chargers go from worst in since 2000 to maybe like 28th in the NFL would be nice? Yeah. I mean, the one thing that Brandon Staley brought up was, you know, creating two on ones on the edge instead of one on ones. And like you saw that James Conner run that went for 20 yards. That was just a straight up missed tackle by Asante Samuel Jr. Um, you know, I think early in the season when Austin Johnson was on the field, like I didn't think the run defense was that bad down to down. It was mm-hmm. like one big play, a game where they were giving up, you know, 50 yard run where somebody missed the tackle on the back end. And it was out the back door for, you know, for a long game. Like, you know, I was calling them catastrophic explosives. Cause that's really what they were. I think since Austin Johnson has gone down, um, it's been different. Like it's been a lot closer to what it was last year which was, you know, losing at the point of attack and giving up five, six yards of pop, not necessarily like those catastrophic explosives that were skewing the numbers earlier in the season. Um, And then a lot of it is coming to the edge. 
Like it, it isn't like it's a matchup league, as Brandon Silly said, and like it's not hard to see what's happening. Like Kyle Van Noy is not particularly stout on the edge as a run defender. Um, he's certainly not Joey Bosa. That's not what they brought him in here to do, but he's being asked to do it because of injuries. And and we can talk about roster construction and edge depth because we all had concerns about the edge depth coming into the season. And when you are when you don't have a ton of depth at a, at a position, usually you get exposed. It's just the football God's way, right? Yeah. The teams are attacking Kyle Van Noy. Like a lot of these long runs are coming at him. And then, you know, if you don't have that stout player on the edge, like a Joey Bosa who's really going to set the edge and create penetration there, then your linebackers have to fit perfectly and then your secondary players if they're one-on-one have to make a tackle on the edge and that just hasn't happened you know Kenneth Murray and I've I've tried to defend Kenneth Murray because I think there are some things that he does really well on the football field and I do like his skill set but there are obviously shortcomings in his game and he runs himself out of a lot of plays and then on that 18 yard run from James Conner like Drew Tranquil is usually really good about being in the right spot at the right time but he got caught up in traffic and that opened up a hole and then that allowed it to be blocked up well on the outside with Derwin there. And then uh, whatever, whichever corner was on the outside, I didn't see if it was Asante or Michael Davis. So how it gets better, like you got to put more guys at the at the line of scrimmage. Like that's how it worked against San Francisco. It was throwing these six-man fronts up there with Derwin yeah. James on the edge. Like that, you know, if you, if, you, if you are up there at the line of scrimmage and your players can't, can't make plays, you got, you know, with the numbers you have up there, you got to put more numbers forward. Um, you know, the issue you get into is if a team can run it and pass it. You know, and that's what you're going to have with the Dolphins, right? Like, you know, Brandon Silly said about the Cardinals, like, listen, you know, they have all these talented receivers. We really wanted to limit the pass game. I understand that. But like with the Dolphins, like if you're going to play that type of game and go into that game and be like, all right, we're going to take away Waddle and or try and take away Waddle and Tyree Kill in the passing game. Right. Like, they will gash you. They will absolutely yeah. gash you. So that, like the issue is. If you throw more guys forward, a team that can do both is going to is going to dominate you. And and that's like the real issue right now. Um, so, you know, but the only way to create a two on one and add an extra number is to put more guys at the line of scrimmage. Right. So right. It's, it's a tough situation. Like, you know, you lose that many guys up front. It's going to obviously impact your rush defense. But, you know, the other thing I'll say here and not to go not to you know rattle on here forever. But no, like, I, go for it. You know, I, I asked Brandon, you know. Like just to get like get it on the record now at this point at this stage in time like what the what is the philosophy like broadly what is the philosophy with with the run defense because you you know he said in the past that like you know preventing explosive passes is what the entire defense is built around right two deep safeties a lot of shell coverage roof on the coverage as he said and prevent those explosive plays and like I was basically like like what in a perfect world, how much are you giving up against the run? Cause obviously you're going to dare teams to run a little bit when you're playing like that, but how much is too much, you know? And he, right. he gave a really good answer. Like, you know, it takes eight, five yard runs to equal a 40 yard pass. And like, you have to start with that premise. So like, they're going to give up some rushing yards. That's never going to go away. Like they're never going to be, you know, a top 10 rushing defense. But the key is like, can you not be the worst rushing defense since 2000? And like, that's the issue is that right. I understand the philosophy you can agree with it. You can disagree with it. That's what the defense is going to be from a philosophical perspective. But you have to be a little bit better against the run. Like you can't be this bad or else you're not going to be able to play good defense. Yeah, I, I know my biggest issue from the run defense standpoint, right, is like I understand you're tr- like this is a passing league and, and he is right, you know, and you you did the math, right, the 24th pass defense versus the 24th run defense. Yeah. And, and and it checks out like his his, his logic is sound in that regard. But it's just from an, I think that mentality almost invites more attrition along the defensive line 
because you're asking these defensive linemen to play that many more runs, run snaps, because teams are just going to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And I think we saw that a little bit against the the 49ers where, I mean, you're asking guys to play so many different snaps, so many different roles and guys are just going to get gassed. They're going to get tired. And eventually it's just going to wear you down. So that's my issue from it is that I, I think it's just, a little bit more skewed than he thinks it is because I do think that teams nowadays are starting to realize like, Hey, like we can run the ball, like whenever we want against light boxes and you're just, we're just okay with it at this point. Yeah, no, there's definitely, there's definitely like a shift happening where teams are like a little bit more willing to run the ball. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you know, I agree with you, you know, I, 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 at the end of the day, like you can't be this bad. Like that's really sort of where I'm at with it, you know? So, yeah. And two years in a row, especially. Yeah, and I think like, you know, you you the, the priority this offseason, right, was fixing this, mm-hmm. right? Like that's what they spent on in free agency. I was, they spent on JC too, but like, you know, they spent on two interior defensive linemen in free agency. Those were like big signings for them. They drafted another one in the fifth round. They got Khalil Mack in here partly to help improve the run defense. And so to, to spend that much of your capital and that many resources into fixing a specific problem, having it not be, be fixed, even if injuries are a part of it, you know, has to be super frustrating. The other thing I'll say is like, in terms of the number of snaps, which I think is like a good point. Cause they played 41 snaps in the second half of that 49ers game. Part of it too is complimentary football. Like that's a cliche for a reason. Yeah. And so like part of that is that your offense is going three and out, three and out, three and out, three and out. And so like, that's part of it. You know, if like the offense can't 100%. possess the ball at all, that's going to feed into the number of snaps that your defense is playing. Like, but if the offense is able to string together some lengthy drives, then your defense can get rested up and that's not as much of an issue. So you do have to look at like the whole football team and what's going on in terms of complementary football as well when you're making that point. Yeah, that's another fantastic yeah. point here. Yeah. Um, kind of a, an extension off of the Brandon Staley conversation here. You, again, you did a great article breaking down Brandon Staley's two-point conversion and how the Chargers got to that point. I'm curious to get your thoughts if that two-point aggressive aggressive call maybe brings 2021 Brandon Staley a little bit out more over the last six weeks of the season. In terms of fourth down decision-making? Yeah, in terms of being that aggressive guy that he was last year. Yeah, I, I, I have to separate those two. You know, I know that technically they're all part of game management, but like he's he's always said, like he's this is the first situation where, they, where they've ever gotten into where they've scored a potential tying touchdown on the road and had that opportunity that's a decision he's going to make every single time. Cause he's always said in the past when they've been in those situations, like if we had scored, I would have gone for two, you know, and they do a great job of scheming up these two point plays. Like that was a brilliant, brilliant call. And like, everyone can give it Joe Lombardi as much back as he wants, but like, and, and the, the beauty of it is that everyone, you know, has learned what stick is. And so they're just constantly getting on him for calling stick yeah. over and over again. They never talk about it when it succeeds, only when it fails. And then here he is with a beautiful change up off a tendency for the chargers, which is running stick flat. And they run a change up off of it. And so does that two point conversion go down in that situation? If they haven't put that tendency of stick flat over and over again on tape, including against the chiefs when Justin Herbert threw the pick six. No, it doesn't. (laughs) I was going to say maybe, but I'm going to say no. no, So listen, I think, I think the, he's a different decision maker. I think I wrote that a couple of weeks ago. He's very clearly a different decision maker this year. Um, I think a lot of it is how good the Chargers have been punting the football. Like they're mm. really good. They are the number one punt return unit or you know, punt defense, punt coverage unit in the league. 
They've, they're giving up under four yards per return. That's number one in the entire NFL. So they felt like, okay, what do we need a, in, in a punter? We need a guy that can just get outrageous hang time. So they bring in J.K. Scott. They get a couple young guys on the outside and Dean Leonard and, and Jasir Taylor. A bunch of these other young guys that were, you know, rookies last year are performing at a higher level, with, a higher level whether it's Nick Neiman and Eamon Agbong-Namiga. They bring in Troy Reader. You know, they get Drew Tranquil on the punt unit as a starter um, on the defense playing on special teams. And they've been really good in that area. So, like, last year they were terrible. You know, they're 25th in the league in punt EPA. Yeah. So this year you have one of the best punt units in the league, and that's going to factor into things. Um, so I don't, think it, I don't think it indicates a shift. I would separate, you know, two-point calls, and that's All right. from fourth down calls. I think the aggressive side of him is still in there, but I think the fact that the punt unit has been so good um, is factoring into some of these decisions on fourth down, like, like that fourth and six from the 48. Like, I think Ben Baldwin's model had that as, you know, a, a strong go. I, you know, I wish we had access to the Chargers modeling um because a lot of it is guesswork unfortunately um but you know that's a perfect example that's probably a place he goes for it last year he doesn't this year he's still able to win the game you know but just focusing on the decision itself there's a clear difference in terms of when he's going for it and when he's not um and i think a lot of it's related to how good the punting has been yeah that's a good point i don't think people are kind of talking about it because everybody kind of thinks that it's like him trusting the defense a little bit but i'm telling you it's the punt unit and dude, Ryan fin- Ryan Ficken is doing a fantastic job. I mean, the Chargers are, have been hovering around a top ten special teams DVOA all season long. It's like, you know, it, it's crazy. Like three different kickers have come through, and just like it doesn't matter. So uh, Ryan Ficken deserves a ton of credit for yeah. what he has done uh, in his first season as Chargers special teams coordinator. Couldn't agree more. So, uh, Popper, I kept you for a little bit longer than I uh, said I would, and I really appreciate. Oh, no. Great uh, all your thoughts and uh are you guys still doing the one dollar deal for for uh Black no Friday, or it is ran out last night but you can still come and join us at the athletic come read me uh yeah lots of content coming your way yeah absolutely couldn't recommend subscribing to the athletic enough i uh you're simply not maximizing your football viewing experience by not subscribing to the athletic in my opinion and that's popper of course it's robert mays nate tice bruce feldman they do great work uh dane brugler as well for the draft so you know the athletic is uh has crushed it and continues to crush it so uh popper appreciate it man i hope you have a uh, wonderful home stretch of the season you guys get to go home for christmas this year or or, or doing everything well flying to indy flying to indy on christmas 3 p.m flight um and then yeah and then game at indianapolis on the day after christmas monday night football so Oh, that's, that's what it is. I flew to I flew to Houston on Christmas last year. It's just like I, I got to go home for Thanksgiving though, back east to Connecticut. So I got to see my family and everything, which oh, is good. Really nice. So good, good, good. Man, we uh I think people kind of take for granted what media members do for uh this sport. So can't thank you enough. For all for, of you. Uh, that's what we yeah. do for, for all of you. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it, Popper man. You have a good one. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Steven. Yep. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. 
Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.